0: I'll add a little bit of specificity to the announcement John made a minute ago about the shaving cream beards this afternoon at uh, Harvest Festival. Um, This is Alex's idea, so this is what we get for bringing in a a new youth pastor who did this sort of thing with his youth group back in Florida, and so we figured it just applies to all of us here on this day in particular, on on, uh, Reformation Sunday or the Reformation month and so uh, Alex has, I think, five cans of shaving cream, and so you won't get to receive one of these as a party favor, but rather you'll have to, five of you, commit to volunteering to be decorated with a Reformation beard of shaving cream, and uh, the, uh, the winning team gets a prize. And I would imagine that if John Calvin knew that he could get a uh, White Rock Coffee gift card for growing his beard out, he would have done it even better. So that could be you today, and uh, it's not just for men, ladies, if you, you know, it's up to you. All right, so this month we've been studying together the themes, the, the major themes of the Protestant Reformation, this being the 500th anniversary of that historical uh, event, which is not so much an event at a, a particular time or year, but it's an ongoing process. It's, it's, it's an ongoing thing that's even going on yet today, always reforming as the gospel changes us. But we've seen how these themes pulse throughout the history of the Reformation and that if Scripture alone is the authority by which we know God and if Christ alone is the Redeemer that God sent for His people and if grace alone provides our access to that Redeemer and if faith alone is the instrument that God has used to make this gospel real in our lives, then the question that remains is this. Who gets the credit for all of this? Who gets the credit for this good news? Whose glory does this all display? Among a host of scripture passages that tell us the answer, King David wrote this short psalm that soars to great heights. This is Psalm 8, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our God, we pray that you would help us to see, to recognize the glory of your majesty In all the earth, Father, help us by the work of Your Spirit through Your Word to see this great thing that is so far beyond us. We can only begin to imagine it apart from Your working it in us. Help us, Father, to do that and to ascribe to You the glory that is due to Your name alone. We pray that You do these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Your Son. Amen. Can be seated. About a week ago. Autumn Finney became famous. And if you've been watching the local news sports cast on television this past week, maybe you saw Autumn Finney become famous. She's a volleyball player at Decatur High School, and she made an amazing save in a volleyball game a week ago. The other team had spiked the ball, and one of her teammates managed to get a fist on the ball to bump it back up into the air, but it was going backwards, and it sailed over the head of the backline player, who had to fall backwards to, with her fist, bump it back up into the air to keep it in play, but she wasn't able to push the ball forward. And so Autumn, recognizing the play developing, came dashing back from the front at the net towards the back line and leapt over her teammate, diving towards the floor as she spiked the ball with her fist hard enough to send it sailing high into the gym and back over the net to the other team as she dove into the hardwood floor. Someone, of course, got it on video. And nowadays, that's what matters, right? They posted it on the Internet and the video began to go viral. People began to pay attention to it, to notice her amazing feat of volleyball prowess. The news stations began to call for interviews. Fans began to gather around. Children of fans would notice her walking around and say, Hey, isn't that the girl who? And she was amazed at all the attention that she got. But then someone else paid attention. Carrie Walsh Jennings, who is in the volleyball world, In many eyes, known to be the greatest volleyball player ever to grace the court or the sand of women's volleyball, three-time Olympic gold medalist and world champion, Carrie Walsh Jennings, tweeted, Autumn Finney, thank you for showing the world how it's done. Heart and hustle and grit for the win. Carrie Walsh Jennings. And Autumn Finney beamed. She couldn't believe it. She was amazed. Among all the attention that she got, interview requests from the local television station, children of fans paying attention to her, wanting maybe her autograph, even even ESPN making note of her great play on video. She said in the midst of all of that, to have her take notice, to have the world champion, the Olympic gold medalist, the greatest of all time, to become mindful of me, as it were, Autumn said everything else paled into comparison. Autumn got a taste of glory this past week, but not just her own glory. Even better than that, she got a taste of the glory of another, a greater one who came near. And I would say that the hunger for such glory is a part of what drove the medieval church into a place where it desperately needed to be reformed when martin luther posted his theses in wittenberg in germany in 1517 october of that year he was not trying to rebel against the church of his day he was not trying to create some new movement to compete with the church of his day he wasn't looking for that at all he was rather looking to reform to to pursue perfection in the church that he knew and loved and yet had long before become something completely other than what God had designed for it to be. It had, the church, become a cosmic plagiarist. It had come to be a cosmic plagiarist claiming glory for itself when glory truly belongs to God alone. Over the course of centuries, The church, through the favor of men and through the power of nations and through the wealth of societies, and even through the wealth, I would say, even more so, the wealth of the common people in that day, the church had used those things to fabricate for itself a man-made so-called glory that was completely at odds with the gospel. And this, among many things, the Reformers recognized, and they longed for the good of the church for the glory of God to be exalted yet again. Glory is a, a very common concept in Scripture. You, you may know that. Well, it's, it's frequently seen on the pages of your Bible. You would just have to go to a concordance in the back of your Bible or somewhere else to look up the word glory or one of its derivatives, and you would see that it gets a, a page or more of entries of Scripture references that it uh, is cited in the Bible. In both Old and New Testaments, the word shows up all the time. It's very common, and it's also a very common concept in the human heart. King David, who wrestled much with glory himself, in writing this hymn put to words one of the greatest needs of the wayward church of his day and put to words one of the greatest needs of the wayward soul of our day. How am I to think of myself? How am I to be oriented in this world? Do I matter? Am I to strive for significance? Am I important? And in doing so, David put to words a key Reformation truth, which is this, the glory of God alone lends substance and significance to this world and all that's in it. And you see that truth when you see the weight Of God, the weight of God. O Lord, our Lord, David writes, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. John Piper, you may know, is a well known preacher in our day, in our country, and John Piper is fond of preaching the glory of God as any pastor should be. And, And Piper puts something of a definition to it. This is Piper's definition of God's glory. He says, it is the outward radiance of the intrinsic beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. That's a lot of words, isn't it? The outward radiance of the intrinsic beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. It's a great shot at a definition of a truly great idea, but it just shows you how words fail to grasp the concept, don't they? I mean, it's, it's ironic to imagine that a person... Even a John Piper theologian could try to put some words to communicate the idea of the glory of God that is so far beyond what we possibly could ever really put to words. And so King David, he stepped outside on a clear, starry night. We don't really know what the circumstances are of David's writing this psalm, but you can imagine it. Perhaps he was a shepherd in the field. Maybe it came early on in his ministry as it began to develop before he was even king. He was a shepherd out in the field, and he spent many nights out in the Judean desert countryside with his flocks, seeing the the sky above his head at night, clear of smog or any light pollution that might be there that we know and that obscures our view. He had no obscuring of his view, and so he could see clearly as a shepherd in the field what was there. Or maybe as a king, maybe it was as king himself that he stepped outside to get away from the stress of his work of that day and at night out onto the pavilion of the palace and he gazed upon the stars and his mind began to wander upon all of God's creation as far as David himself at his time with the technology and the understanding that was available to him could could conceive of it and he only had to look up into the sky to see the miraculous creation that he could only imagine with what he could see. But we know so much more, don't we? We know so much more than David knew at the time. I mean, we know that the, the Milky Way, the galaxy in which our solar system resides, which David could presumably see, maybe without that name, but he could see it up in the, in the sky and see the galaxy spreading out before him in the majestic night sky. And he can marvel at it, but we know that the, the, the Milky Way is just one galaxy. And astronomers in our day estimate that the Milky Way contains more than 100 billion stars. More than 100 billion stars in this galaxy alone, and that's just our neighborhood. The technology that we have, the Hubble telescope and others will tell us without a doubt, that there are beyond our own galaxy millions upon millions of other galaxies out there in the universe that have themselves their own hundreds of billions of stars. And David stands on his pavilion at night and says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've placed your glory above the heavens. What is glory? What's David talking about? The Hebrew word is kavod, which means weight, significance, substance, weight. Oh, Lord, our Lord, you're, you've placed your weight, you've displayed your substance and your significance above the heavens. And again, Piper explains the glory of God is his holiness put on display. And this is what we see in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has this amazing vision of God in his throne room. And he sees the angels and he hears what they're proclaiming. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's His holiness put on display as the Holy One. He has a weight that no one else can rival. There's only one God. And Scripture is, of course, absolutely unapologetic about God's unrivaled significance. Psalm 103 the Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Or First Chronicles 29, to dig back into your Old Testament a bit. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. And God Himself, of course, agrees. Psalm 50, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills... I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves on the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And of course, the Apostle Paul, reflecting on these truths to the people of Athens as he preached the gospel there in Acts 17, explains, God is not served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and life and breath, and everything. His glory, His weight, is absolutely unrivaled by anything in the history of the universe, and all of that universe exists to display that glory of God. Isaiah 43, Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, For my glory. Now, that would sound to our naturally somewhat skeptical hearts to be selfish. Wouldn't it? That that God created all these things, including the people that He calls to Himself, to be for the purpose of His own glory. It sounds selfish. I mean, what kind of a God would be so self obsessed as to promote His own significance? Well, this kind. The one God who knows that the moon will never be seen if the sun doesn't shine on it first. To know your orientation in this world, you have to see the weight of God. But it's that very weight of God that fulfills the desire of man. What do we desire? What do we most desire down deep in the in the depth of our souls, of your hearts and minds? What do you what do you really desire? Like glory, Scripture speaks much of desire. It's an important gospel element. It's an important biblical truth to wrestle with a bit. And some desire that the Bible speaks of honors God, and some of it does not. But desire itself is a part of our creation, it's a, a, an, an implicit and necessary part of our being image bearers of God Himself to have desire. We desire. Ultimately, what? What do we desire? We desire to matter. We desire to have significance. We desire to have weight. We desire to have glory. I mean, think about the different ways that this occurs. It shows up in your life every day. Right now, it's homecoming season, right? In in, uh, different communities and schools, it's homecoming season. And so, our kids' school had a homecoming dance just last night. And so if you think about it this way, when a, a teenager thinks about who they're going to invite to the homecoming dance or who they might attend with, who their date might be, that in, inevitably this thinking begins to occur in the mind of, of a boy. If only she would agree to be my date. If only she would be my date to the homecoming dance, then not only would I get to enjoy her company and her her, her funny personality and her beautiful face, but my friends would see me with her and they would think more highly of me. Or she thinks the same kind of way. You know, what? which boy is going to invite me to the homecoming dance? I hope that it's him. I hope it's that boy because if I get to go to the dance with him then not only will I get to enjoy His presence for a while, but my friends will see me with Him and fill in the blank. That's the way that we think, right? Of course, it's not just teenagers. You know, if I could be a student at that university, then it would open up all the doors of the world to me. All the possibilities would be laid before me. Or if I could just live in that part of town, if I could just move over to that neighborhood, then fill in the blank, or if I could just have dinner with my friends at that restaurant when that chef prepares that special dish that I read about in the newspaper, then I would know what it tastes like to have heaven on my tongue. Or if I could just take that vacation at that time of year in that place, then my bucket list would be complete. I mean, on it goes, right? You could run down a whole list of opportunities for you to pursue glory, and all of those things are happy things. But to quote the ever-quotable C.S. Lewis, still we remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will ever satisfy. Why? Because we desire heavenly glory, but it's elusive. King David felt that, the elusiveness of it. He said, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man... I mean, you can almost hear the desperation of his question and and the breath drawing out of his elusive pursuit. David asks, what is man? Oh, Lord, who am I to matter in comparison to all of this glory, God, to all of your glory? Who am I in comparison to all of the, the weight that I see about me in this world? I'm just a speck of dust. I don't even matter. Because the desire of every person is to have glory. And in our fallen condition, it seems the best that we can do is just to become cosmic plagiarists. To to claim for ourselves some glory that ultimately doesn't belong to us at all. But that's not the only option. And David shows us here, that's not the only option. There are a couple of things that the gospel offers to us here. And one is an intrinsic glory. What is man, David asks, and he answers, Well, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. David's got some good theology here. He's got some good anthropology. He's remembering his scriptures and how God created all of creation, including the man and the woman, and he's working out some good Genesis theology here. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. It's an important wording because... David orients us correctly. He says, by implication, we're not higher than the animals. In other words, your place in this world is not to look down at the animals, but rather to look up. He he made you to be a little lower than the heavenly beings. And that's a very significant difference, that your orientation is to look up, not down. And so when Paul, the apostle, wrote to the Corinthians these well-known words whatever you do do it all for the glory of god paul is not insisting that the corinthians now pursue excellence in everything that they do that's not what he's saying he is not telling them to overachieve he's not saying you need to go and get a 1600 perfect score on your sat to glorify god that's not what he's saying he is rather saying that you need to realize that you and your actions Your words, your thoughts are reflections of the glory and weight of God. Even more than that, just the details you don't even think about. I mean, imagine this. Every time your eyes blink, every time your eyes blink, the glands, the tear ducts in your eyes inject fluid into your eyes to care for those delicate creations that give you sight, And they work perfectly every time. And if they don't, you know it. And every time you blink your eyes, the glory of God is proclaimed in the creation because He made it to work that way. Every time you take a breath, you draw in oxygen into your lungs and your lungs sort through the the combination of elements in in that air and draw out the oxygen into your blood to give you life. Every time you take a breath, the glory of God is proclaimed. Just like the moon, reflecting the light of the sun coming down upon it. There is an intrinsic glory to just who you are. But there's also a shared glory that's offered in this gospel. David writes of it. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him? Who is the son of man that you care for him? David is writing, as a poet would do, a Hebrew parallelism, the same thought in different way, different words, back to back. Who is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And the words that he uses here are really important words. Who is man that you're mindful of him? It's not that God is just aware of and has uh, an academic knowledge that man exists. That's not what he's talking about. It's a concern. It's a, a word that, that alludes to God's concern and interest in the details of who is man that you're mindful of him, that you're concerned for him, and the son of man that you care for him. The Hebrew word has, has a sense of coming close to, not just caring about from a distance, but caring for up close. In fact, I think the King James Version uses the English word visits. Who is the son of man that you should visit him? that you should come to him. Now imagine that volleyball player again for a moment to go back to that, if you will. Think about Autumn Finney having made that great play on a Friday night and basking in the glory of acclamation over the course of the weekend and seeing that tweet from the greatest volleyball player ever. What if on Monday morning she arrived at school and there was a a call from the principal's office. Autumn Finney, come to the principal's office. So she does, and there sitting in the principal's office is Carrie Walsh Jennings. Imagine that she traveled from wherever she lives, California probably. They all live in California, right? She comes from California and visits Decatur, Texas, and sits there waiting for Autumn Finney to come. And She's wearing her three gold medals, and she's got her world champion trophies there on the table. And she greets Autumn and hugs her, and she walks with Autumn through her class schedule for the day, sitting with her all day long. Imagine, imagine how that would elevate a high school girl if this greatest one were to visit her and know her. I mean, this is what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, the man who loves God is known by God known by God, cared for, mindful of, visited by God. And this is what we long for. We long to be known. We long to be noticed. We long to be accounted for by someone, but even better, by the one who really has weight. And so God does what's best for us. What's that? He seeks glory for his own name. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you hear that? The, the second part explains the first. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. In other words, what's good for us, the love and faithfulness of God glorifies God. And what glorifies God is good for us. Only in the glory of God is the deepest desire of your soul satisfied. Only in that place, only in that glory. The God of all creation is mindful of you. His glory has come close to you and you know that it's true because Christ has condescended to you. One of the great ironies of the gospel, of course, is that one who is truly weighty, one who's truly substantial, truly glorious, is not afraid of humility. I mean, we know this in our daily lives, right? You recognize that with with truly great people, they're not afraid of humility because they have nothing to lose, right? And this is one of the great ironies of the gospel. After all, if the mouths of babies and infants are the strength of God against his foe, then you know the irony of the gospel is going to run deep. And that irony ran deep, of course, in the Protestant Reformation in lots of different ways. One of those stories goes like this. About a a century, a hundred years before Martin Luther did his thing, there was another reformer before his time, a Czechoslovakian, a Czech man named... Jan Hus, H-U-S, Hus. His last name in the Czech language meant goose. Jan Hus preached Reformation gospel doctrines in his day, and he got in much trouble for it. In fact, he lost his life for it. And the bishop who confronted him and declared him to be a heretic and sentenced him to death in mocking Hus about his coming death, Hus replied to the bishop, you may cook this goose, but a swan will arise whom you will never silence. And the story of Hus having said that began to swirl around and probably became somewhat legendary. And R.C. Sproul tells the story. A hundred years later, Martin Luther was born and grew up and rose to his position of posting his 95 theses and the Reformation was well underway. And when Martin Luther was ordained as a monk at Erfurt Cathedral in Germany, underneath the floor of the cathedral where Martin Luther came to kneel down and receive his ordination, buried underneath the stones of the floor was the body of the bishop who had condemned Jan Hus to death. And literally over his dead body was ordained the swan whose voice would not be silenced. I mean, isn't the irony beautiful? Isn't the irony remarkable that this is what God would do to use a flawed man, just in talking during the passing of the peace, remembering the flaws of Martin Luther that were so profound. And yet God raised up this man to speak a voice that could not be silenced and that would stir centuries of history in the making for the sake of the gospel. The irony is beautiful. And King David probably didn't realize the irony with which he wrote this psalm. I mean, he was marveling at creation, right, as we are prone to do or maybe should be more prone to do, to marvel at God's creation. He was marveling at the creation when he wrote this psalm and basking in the glory of God. But David's words, probably unbeknownst to him, would foreshadow something far, far greater than just the words that he put on paper. There's a double meaning to verses 4 and 5 of this psalm, a double meaning that's profoundly significant. David here is wrestling with his own need for glory, but the spirit who stirred these words in his heart had something much bigger in mind. The writer to the Hebrews fills us in in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer tells us this, it has been testified somewhere. And this is interesting, I mean you think of a a biblical writer maybe knowing all of Scripture and wondering, well somewhere it's been testified, maybe the writer of the Hebrews wasn't quite sure where it was, but everybody knew it had been testified somewhere. I would expect that this writer knew where Psalm 8 was. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of Man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This, the writer to the Hebrews is just quoting Psalm 8, right? And, then, and this is all familiar territory, but now he begins to explain it. He says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, God left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels. I mean, here the writer to the Hebrews is recognizing the irony of the gospel that that God, who had all the glory, would condescend to become a little lower than the angels. He, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I mean, here is the proof of God's love for his people. Is it not? And the writer to the Hebrews doesn't want for us to miss it that the one who created the stars and the heavens set his glory above the heavens and yet was made to be like we are for a time a little lower than the angels in order to taste death for us so that he might rise again and to be crowned with glory and honor. I mean, truly, the one who is glory set aside that glory for a time so that everyone who sees that glory might become glory with him. And so the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Romans, he's expounding on the amazing richness of the gospel and sorting through the matter of the Jews who had rejected the gospel and now the Gentiles who are accepting the gospel. And even the Romans, of all people, the Romans in the power city of the world are receiving the gospel and believing in the glory of God through the humility and the condescension of Christ. Paul is so marveling at this amazing work of grace in history that he can conclude in only one way. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him... And to him and through him are all things. To him alone be glory forever. Amen and amen. Oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would help us to see, as Paul could see, that to you alone be the glory. We pray, Father, that you would help us to recognize the riches of your good news in Christ, that you have called us to belong to you by the grace of your gospel through the faith of what you have worked by your spirit in the souls of men. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to glorify you, to ascribe all glory to your name and to revel in the rest that you give to us in Jesus because of your glory. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.